Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Halstead Real Estate, and I love New York. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program about the history, texture, and vibe of our amazing cities. City, sorry. <laughs> well, the once upon a time it was several cities. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owner, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, local musicians and artists, and the occasional elected official. On many shows, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood, exploring its history and its current energy, what makes that particular New York neighborhood special. Sometimes, like tonight, we host a show about an interesting and vital color of the city and its history that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. Prior episodes have covered the history of U.S. presidents who came from, lived in, or who had some interesting history here in New York. About half of them did, believe it or not. African-American history in the city, the history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've explored the history of bicycles and cycling. We've covered the history of punk and opera in New York. They were separate programs, obviously. And we explored the city's greatest train stations and even some of the bridges. In the future, we'll journey to some of the city's parks, the subway, and even our fresh water. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. Tonight, we're hosting one of those special episodes, this one in honor of Women's History Month and International Women's Day, which was two days ago on March 8th. Today is the 10th, yes. To start the program tonight, we are going into our archive to an interview I conducted about a year ago with Lucy Levine. The interview was about the women's suffrage movement in Brooklyn in the 19th century and is a perfect precursor to the work of our live guest tonight, Sarah Seidman of the Museum of the City of New York, some of whose subjects lived and worked after women attained the national right to vote with the passage of the 19th Amendment in 1920. Here is my interview with Lucy. We're going to start the first half of the show by celebrating Women's History Month with a guest who's been on the show before. Lucy Levine is a writer, historian, and New York City tour guide. She founded Archive on Parade, a historical tour and event company that takes New York's history out of the archives and into the streets. Lucy's collaborated with institutions including the Municipal Arts Society, the Historic Districts Council, of which I'm a member, the New York Public Library, I also have a card there, and the 92nd Street Y, as well as the St. Regis Hotel and Landmarks West. Lucy offers exciting tours, lectures, and community events all over town. She's also the public programs consultant at Friends of the Upper East Side Historic Districts and contributing history writer at Six Square Feet. Uh, this may be actually be the last official celebration of Women's History Month since it ended over the weekend, and here we are in April, but I thought it was a fitting uh, a coda to Women's History Month by having Lucy on to talk about the history of the women's suffrage movement in Brooklyn. Lucy, welcome back to Rediscovering New York. Hi, thank you so much for having me. You're a native New Yorker, but you're not from Brooklyn. Uh, no. So I was born on the Upper West Side. So uh, being on this show, I am uh, in my old stomping grounds, but I do live in Brooklyn now. I live in Greenpoint. Since we're uh, going to be focusing on Brooklyn, we'll actually highlighting it today, uh, what had you moved from where we're sitting right now to Brooklyn and to Greenpoint? You know, I love Greenpoint. It really has a, a deeply neighborhood feel, and I feel uh, very at home and very connected to the neighborhood there. So uh, I just kind of felt myself, you know, wanting to be in that place. And so I moved there. And as far as your work, your work with Archive on Parade and your historical work, uh, how did you wind up going into how did you wind up going into the business that you're in? 
So I have always loved history. I studied it in school. Uh, and as a native New Yorker, the history of the city is in my heart and in my blood and something that I really wanted uh, to dive very deeply into and to share with other people. Um, so I had been teaching, and one of the things I was allowed to do with my students was to take them on field trips around the city. Uh, and planning those field trips was really rewarding, and the kids seemed to really enjoy it. And so it gave me uh, the first taste of really um, using the city as almost like a classroom and, and seeing that it can be such a wonderful resource in terms of uh, just sharing this incredible history that we have all around us. Mm. When did you become interested in the history of the women's suffrage movement in, in New York and specifically in Brooklyn? Well, actually, uh, 2017 marked uh, the 100th anniversary of women being granted the right to vote in New York State. Of course, uh, nationally, it's 1920, but in New York State, it was 1917. Uh, and so in 2017, the Landmarks Preservation Commission uh, actually created a, a landmarks map related to uh, women's history and particularly suffrage landmarks. Uh, uh, and I saw so many in Manhattan, and I saw just one or two in Brooklyn, and I thought, well, you know, I wonder what this history is. I wonder if there's more here. And I had the really wonderful experience, uh, actually, during Women's History Month when I was giving uh, a tour of uh, Brooklyn Heights around this topic uh, just in March, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, one of the people on that tour was the guy from the Landmarks Preservation Commission who had created that map. Uh, and he said, I'm so excited to be on this tour because the only spots that I could put on the map uh, were ones that had actually been landmarked. So if you have found ones that have not yet been landmarked, that's really exciting for me. And so that's something that I uh, was able to do and really dive into. And so that's been really uh, exciting and rewarding. Mm. Great. Brooklyn, of course, was its own city. In fact, it was one of the largest cities in the United States with a vibrant port and, and vibrant industry until the consolidation of this New York we know today, which happened in 1898. Uh, the convention, the, the first women's rights, con the, women, the first women's suffrage convention, excuse me, took place in Seneca Falls, also in New York. New York is a mm -hmm. state of first and, uh, and first in, in a lot of kinds of freedoms. Um, were there any local organizations for women's suffrage before that 1848 convention? Uh, yes. So a lot of the women um, who were part of that 1848 convention uh, were themselves New Yorkers. And so um, the New York City Women's Suffrage Association uh, predates that convention. But the first one actually in Brooklyn, so the city of Brooklyn itself, um, was founded in 1868. Hmm. Um, so it was uh, founded after the Civil War. Yes. What, why would there have been, do you think, a delay between the, the Seneca Falls Convention and uh, something that just occurred to me and uh, the, the establishment of the New York City Women's Suffrage Organization and, and then in Brooklyn? I mean, Brooklyn itself was a vibrant place. It was one of the largest cities in the country. What, what might have contributed to, to taking 20 years for, for Brooklyn to, to put itself on the map? You know, I think that Brooklyn... Um, in its earliest iterations, right, this was the city of churches, right? This wasn't um, sort of a city of uh, commerce and hustle and bustle in the way that uh, New York City was itself. And so uh, I think that there wasn't the kind of ferment, perhaps, in Brooklyn. There was a lot more piety going on in Brooklyn, a lot more kind of um, sort of gentleness, almost, if you want. There wasn't the, the kind of... Uh, social ferment uh, at that time that was going on uh, in uh, in Manhattan, but uh, 
that social ferment is really going to pick up in Brooklyn when we get to um, the abolitionist movement. And that's well, that's where we'll see really this incredible outpouring uh, in Brooklyn in terms of uh, civil rights and social rights. And so that movement that really takes root in Brooklyn in a really wonderful way uh, will then lead to uh, the women's rights movement becoming a really big part of the Brooklyn scene. Uh, in fact, many of the people who contributed to the creation of the very first Brooklyn Women's Suffrage Association um, were part of the abolitionist movement, and they talked about uh, throwing their weight and their interest and their uh, passion behind what they called um, a new outlet in the cause of justice. Uh, and that outlet uh, was women's rights, but that came on the heels of the abolitionist movement. So it makes sense to me in Brooklyn that um, it would have been after the Civil War that that kind of uh, organization would take place. And Brooklyn, of course, was uh, a very strong part of the abolitionist movement before the Civil War. Um, uh, Harry Beecher Stowe's father was was the minister. I forgot the name of the church, but um, uh, Harry so Ward Beecher, is it? So her brother was Henry Ward Beecher. Okay. <laughs> yes, uh, and he was a preacher at the Plymouth Church in Brooklyn Heights, which still stands. Uh, and that was absolutely um, part of the Underground Railroad. And he actually financed... Um, John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry, he actually um, provided the guns, they called them Beecher's Bibles, were the guns in that uh, uprising. And so that's a pretty extraordinary situation. And so he um, preached something called the gospel of love. And in fact, in his lifetime, uh, he became more famous for a uh, adultery scandal um, than anything else. So when we talk about the gospel of love, that's kind of funny to me. Huh? Um, but he actually would be the very first president of the American Women's Suffrage Association because it was 1869, and so who gets to be the president of the American Women's Suffrage Association? None other than a man who's Henry Ward Beecher. But uh, he was very deeply involved in both the abolitionist uh, and the women's movements, as were so many uh, people in Brooklyn, and particularly uh, preachers, because this was the idea of the equality of the soul. And so uh, when we think of the equality of the soul, right, everybody's equal in the eyes of God, so it made a lot of sense that members of the clergy uh, in Brooklyn would be part of these uh, two movements, especially because, as I said, Brooklyn is the city of churches, right? And so you have uh, an incredible sort of cadre of clergy members who are going to be involved. Mm. Of course, uh, uh, great movements like the women's suffrage movement don't get started and built without great people and great personalities to lead them. Uh, you mentioned uh, uh, preachers and people of the church uh, talk a little bit about the Reverend Celia Burley and how she got started in the movement. Sure. So Celia Burley uh, was quite an extraordinary woman. She was the very first uh, female ordained Methodist preacher uh, in the United States. And she started out actually as a journalist in Brooklyn. Uh, and she will get involved uh, in the women's rights movement in a couple of ways. Uh, first of all, She'll actually be the very first president uh, of the Brooklyn Women's Suffrage Association, which was the first uh, women's suffrage association founded in Brooklyn. So it was founded by her friend Anna C. Field uh, in 1868, and Anna C. Field found this in her home. She lived at uh, 158 Hicks Street in Brooklyn Heights. Uh, and she invites Celia Burley and Henry Ward Beecher and a whole host of other um, local progressive personalities to her home, and they found uh, this organization. And then the next year, in 1869, she's really going to bring uh, suffrage to Brooklyn with a BAM. Uh, and by BAM, I literally mean the Brooklyn Academy of Music, which used to be uh, in Brooklyn Heights. Now it's in Fort Greene, but it used to be on Montague Street. 
uh, in Brooklyn Heights. So she will host a marathon meeting, uh, which is... Wasn't it like all day or something? Yes. Absolutely all day. It goes from like 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. Um, and Celia Burley is there. And, um, you know, Susan B. Anthony is there. And, you know, anybody who we think of when we think of this movement, Lucy Stone, um, everybody is there to kind of give their blessing to this movement. Uh, and Celia Burley will get on stage uh, at that event and she will say that the women's movement uh, will allow women to be women in a broader sense than they had ever yet been uh, because they can be women with their whole bodies and their whole souls. Uh, and so this idea of the equality of the soul thanks is really part and parcel of what she does, but also um, she combines not only sort of preaching, but also women's work. So uh, when we talk about sort of what we now would say like intersectionality of these things being more than just politics, but also work and also sexual freedom, all these things. Um, she had been a journalist, and so she starts something called Sororis. And she also got her st- uh, was inspired by women journalists being kept out of a <laughs> yes. city press club event honoring Charles Dickens, and she must have been pretty angry about that. And, Absolutely. Uh, so that's the sort of genesis of Sororis. There was a press club event, and it was said that if women were invited uh, to honor Charles Dickens, that event would be promiscuous. And she said, oh, my, you know, come on, that's ridiculous. And so she comes home. That happened in Manhattan. And she comes home to Brooklyn, and she says to her friend Anna Seafield, we have to start something for working women in Brooklyn that is equivalent to what Sororis is, which was the first women's professional organization in the country. So the two of them together, they found uh, the Brooklyn Women's Club, uh, which is the second uh, women's professional organization in the country. So not only is she involved in the suffrage movement, but also, um, you know, organizing for for women's work and um, that kind of equality as well. Oh, and she worked with Anna Field as well. To, yes. Yes. Okay. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we are going to continue our discussion with Lucy Levine and the history of the women's suffrage movement in Brooklyn. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day.
are back with Lucy Levine, and you're tuned into Rediscovering New York on talkradio.nyc. Lucy, tell us a little bit about Archive on Parade and how people can find out more about, about your work. Sure. So Archive on Parade is a historical tour and event company, uh, and all of the tours and events are based on archival research. So uh, I offer walking tours, I offer lectures, I offer... Um, trivia events, you name it, I do it. Uh, I think of myself as a freelance nerd, uh, and it's quite a lot of fun. If you'd like to uh, learn more about when my next tours are uh, or you know any public events you'd like to attend, you can visit my website at uh, archiveonparade.com. That's A-R-C-H-I-V-E-O-N-P-A-R-A-D-E.com. Great. Um, getting back to some of the, the foot soldiers in the women's suffrage movement in Brooklyn, um, also, wasn't the first suffrage organization by and for African men, African American women, also started in Brooklyn? Absolutely. Um, there were actually several um, women suffrage organizations uh, founded by and for Black women in Brooklyn. Um, unfortunately, when we think of, or in fact, when we're taught about uh, the women suffrage movement uh, and sort of the early feminist movement. Uh, were taught almost exclusively about white women, uh, and that was never the case. Uh, there were always African-American women uh, in that struggle, uh, and particularly in Brooklyn. So I was talking before about churches. Now, the old Bridge Street Church uh, in what's now called downtown Brooklyn, uh, <laughs> funnily enough, it's now owned by NYU, but because uh, <laughs> they own everything, right? But before it was Like a lot of real estate in the city that they, that they own now. <laughs> But before it was owned by NYU, um, it was really the center of uh, black Brooklyn uh, during and after the Civil War. And in fact, uh, when the Emancipation Proclamation was issued, uh, a copy of it was read on the steps of the old Bridge Street Church. Um, and people like Frederick Douglass uh, preached there. So it was really um, a very, very, very sort of potent uh, place in uh, African-American history in Brooklyn. And one of uh, the parishioners there, in fact two, um, were the Smith sisters. So there was Sarah Smith Garnett uh, and there was Susan Smith McKinney Stewart. So Sarah Smith Garnett uh, was the first uh, African-American woman to found uh, a black women's suffrage organization. Uh, it was the Equal Suffrage League of Brooklyn. Uh, she founded it in the late 1880s, but she was not only a pioneer in terms of women's suffrage, she was also a pioneer in terms of education. So she was actually the very first um, black woman to be a principal in the uh, Brooklyn public school system. Um, and her sister was also a trailblazer. So Susan Smith McKinney Stewart uh, was the very first black female physician uh, in New York City, and I mention her because she actually was the organist at the church. So these two women were deeply involved in this church. Uh, in fact, Sarah Smith Garnett is buried there. Uh, but both of the sisters come from an incredibly trailblazing family as well. They were um, born and raised in Weeksville, which um, was the second largest uh, free black community in antebellum America. And it was founded, one of the founders, in fact, uh, was there. Where was Weeksville? Was it in uh, Manhattan, in Brooklyn? Where? It was in Brooklyn, yeah. It was uh, on what is now sort of the um, Crown Heights bed border. Um, but it was founded by uh, free black landowners, uh, one of which was their father, Sylvia Smith. Um, and their goal in the 1830s was uh, as... Uh, free black entrepreneurs was to own land because if you were a free black person in the north um, 
you could only vote if you owned land. You had a $250 uh, land-owning requirement, which white, which white men did not have. But, um, so as black landowners, they understood that if they were going to engage in full citizenship, they had to own land because they had to be able to vote. So this sort of impetus on voting, on having that kind of political uh, equal citizenship, was something you know, that the Smith sisters really grew up with. Uh, and that they brought the fight to the women's suffrage movement, which is really quite moving and quite amazing. You know, I wonder if Brooklyn was more progressive toward the end of the 19th century. A, an African-American female principal is not something I would have expected even in the New York City school, uh, school, in the New York City school system, which included Manhattan and then later part of the Southern Bronx. Um, so three cheers to Brooklyn. We, uh, we paved the way with a lot of things. Um, and then we also had Victoria Earl Matthews, who mm-hmm. was very prominent in the, in the movement, too. Absolutely. So Victoria Earl Matthews uh, was an extraordinary woman. So she um, actually was born into slavery, and then she was uh, a graduate of Howard University, uh, and she was a writer uh, and a speaker. Um, and she gave lecture tours, and um, she gave lectures. She went on tour and gave lectures. And one of those lectures uh, was the awakening of the Afro-American woman. Uh, and we talk a lot. Uh, in sort of the women's movement about something like consciousness raising, which a lot of people think is a 1960s thing, is a second wave feminism thing, you know, coming out of uh, the 60s and 70s. And in fact, no, right? You know, who starts it? It's 19th century black women, right? So um, what's so wonderful about history is that we get to um, learn about people who make our narratives richer and wider, you know? And so when we get to learn about these people, we get to understand that, you know, there's so much more than we understand. So we can think about consciousness raising now as a 19th century sort of African-American experience and not just, let's say, a 20th century like white women's experience. And I think that that's really uh, quite special. But after uh, Victoria Earl Matthews does that, um, she goes on to do a um, great number of other things too. So she is also Um, the founder of the White Rose Mission, uh, which was, at the time that it existed, it existed uh, in Manhattan, not Brooklyn, uh, on 86th Street, and it was called the Home for Working Class Negro Girls. So it was this idea, again, of not only political equality, but also kind of uh, social uh, and economic equality. So again, this idea of intersectionality really coming into play here, that what these women understood was if they were going to live as full citizens, as full people, um, they needed equality in, in every aspect of their lives, and they really fought for it. What did Maria Coles Perkins Lawton do in the movement in Brooklyn? She also went to Howard University. Mm-hmm. She did. I didn't even know that Howard University admitted women back in the <laughs> late part of the 19th century. So Maria Coles Perkins Lawton uh, is a really interesting figure. Uh, because she was of mixed-race heritage, and so she was able to pass in a lot of ways. Uh, And we spoke about uh, others in the movement who were writers, uh, and she was as well. And so she wrote for a number of publications in Brooklyn, uh, both the black and white press. And what she was able to do was really take on the white press, uh, particularly the Brooklyn Eagle, and say, you know, the way that you're writing about the African-American community here isn't appropriate, and there there was a situation in which the Brooklyn Eagle really kind of took her at her word and said, okay, you know, we'll, we'll change some of this verbiage, which is a, a sort of stunning victory that she had there. Um, but beyond that, she actually goes uh, sort of beyond the local level to the national level, and she becomes 
um, a delegate at the 1924 Republican Convention, because, of course, at that time, the Republican Party was the party of Lincoln. Uh, and so uh, black voters, uh, really before the 1960s, um, more often than not voted uh, for Republican candidates. And so her role uh, in 1924 was to organize black women voters for the, for the Republican Party. And that was the year that Calvin Coolidge was uh, elected. Indeed. Uh, in, in fact, she endorsed Calvin Coolidge, didn't she? She did, right. yes, at the Republican National Convention, absolutely. Yes, I remember it well. Not really, <laughs> wasn't, uh, not that old. <laughs> um, Brooklyn also has a prominent history in the women's uh, equality movement in that the first women graduates of NYU Law School were also from Brooklyn. Absolutely. Uh, so there is a woman named Cornelia K. Hood who was known as the Brooklyn Portia. Now, she uh, is so kind of written out of history that when I when I do this as a walking tour, I, I normally have photographs of, photographs, no, but um, images of all of these women. Uh, and I could not find an image of her anywhere, not in the Brooklyn Eagle, not anywhere. Um, and what's so interesting is that the home that she lived in uh, was 6264 Montague Street, and there is a plaque on that building, but not for her. The plaque is for Arthur Miller. He also lived there. And Obviously, he deserves a plaque. He's one of the finest American dramatists to ever live. Uh, I would never dispute that he should get a plaque. But the point is that she doesn't get one, right? And she was really a stunning figure. So she uh, was the valedictorian of the very first women's law class. Now, NYU Law School was the very first law school in the country to allow women to study law. So the women's law class was inaugurated in 1890. Um, and just to put that year in perspective, so Harvard Law School did not admit women until 1950. So this was quite extraordinary. Well, that's Boston, and we're in New York. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. To, uh, but to take be that fair, Red Sox though, but I got to, you know, I got to say it, though, because Columbia University uh, didn't allow women until about 1943. Uh, the dean of Columbia Law once said, um, women will study law over my dead body. And he died. And women literally walked in over his dead body. Huh. <laughs> so to NYU Law School, which I think is a fun <laughs> little anecdote. But anyway, so um, Cornelia K. Hood uh, so again, she is the uh, valedictorian of the women's law class. And the women's law class initially uh, was not part of NYU law. So for that first year, it was a certificate class. And then in 1891, uh, if you earned that certificate, then you could matriculate at NYU law as a woman. And the very first women to graduate with JDs uh, graduated in 1893. And, and she was one of them. But in her uh, women's law class valedictory speech, um, which she called Why I Study Law, she said that um, the law as it stands doesn't privilege women in the same way that it does men. And so if we are going to uh, have equality under the law, uh, then it's up to us to lift ourselves up. Uh, and to do that, um, legal minds among ourselves will be indispensable. So her point was that not only was she studying for herself, but also uh, for other women around her. Hmm. And Emily Warren Roebling, who actually completed the, uh, <laughs> the, the management of the building of the Brooklyn Bridge, was also in that class, wasn't she? Uh, so she was not in that class. She graduated a few years later, but she did absolutely graduate uh, from NYU Law School, which mm. is um, such an interesting sort of coda to her life. She died very young. She had stomach cancer and she died very young, but not before she literally finished the Brooklyn Bridge and graduated from NYU Law School. So, you know, what people can achieve in their lifetimes, I think, is, mm. is so special to think about. But one thing that she did say that was quite hilarious 
Uh, she wrote to her son after the Brooklyn Bridge opened, and she said, if it wasn't for me, the name Roebling would never be associated with the Brooklyn Bridge. Good thing I have more civil engineering understanding than any two engineers put together, civil or uncivil. And I'm like, mic drop, girl. <laughs> well, in the, the short time we have left, Lucy, uh, I want to move to, to a, a, a little bit more colorful character in the women's rights movement. Uh, Lucy Burns, she got involved with Emmeline Pankhurst in London and the Women's Social Political Union, uh, which in Britain at the time was regarded as a little bit more militant than some, mm -hmm. of, the than some of the suffrage organizations here in the States. Absolutely. So Lucy Burns uh, has the designation of being the most jailed person uh, in the women's suffrage movement. So she went to jail more times uh, than anybody else. Um, and she was quite uh, an interesting figure. In fact, she the first time she went to jail, she did so... Uh, working in England with Emmeline Pankhurst, as you said, and there's a situation in which uh, she actually meets Winston Churchill because she crashes a dinner party that he's at, uh, and she says, Winston Churchill, you know, how can you eat while women are in jail? And next thing you know, she's in jail. Um, but, yeah, she's an incredible woman. She begins her life in Brooklyn. She was a, really a lifelong Brooklynite. So she grew up in Brooklyn, and then she taught in Brooklyn, too, at Erasmus Hall High School. Uh, and then she continued her own education in England, which is how she got involved um, in the Women's Social and Political Union. Uh, and while she's there, um, she meets Alice Paul. So Alice Paul and Lucy Burns are kind of like um, Elizabeth... Uh, Katie Stanton and Susan B. Anthony 2.0. So they're the next generation. They're going to come back to the United States in 1912 and found the Congressional Union for Women's Suffrage, which in 1916 became the National Women's Party. Uh, and the National Women's Party was a lot more militant uh, than um, the women's movement in the United States had been up to that time, because they're really taking this idea from the British. Um, and they actually create what's called the very first March on Washington. It was the first time uh, that a procession of uh, protesters uh, made their way up the National Mall, and it was the day before Woodrow Wilson's inauguration. It's actually led by another Brooklynite, uh, Inez Mulholland, uh, who was just amazing. She's kind of the um, Joan of Arc of the suffrage movement, and her rallying cry is, Mr. Wilson, how long will women wait for liberty? And, and you know, 5,000 women marching behind her, and it's quite a moving uh, situation. Uh, and I'm Ms. Mulholland, who is also a Vassar graduate, and full disclosure, I also am a Vassar graduate. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, Lucy. Thank you so much for coming back to Rediscovering New York. Our first guest has been Lucy Levine, founder and owner of Archive on Parade. Thank you so much. Well, I hope you enjoyed the archive listening of my interview last year with Lucy Levine of Archive on Parade. We've actually enjoyed listening to it in the studio. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our celebration of Women's History Month here in the city with a conversation with a curator at the Museum of the City of New York, Sarah Seidman. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. 
you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors. Christopher Pappas, mortgage specialist at TD Bank. To find out how Chris can help you with all your residential home mortgage needs and tailor a mortgage that's right for you, please give Chris a call at 203-512-3918. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Our show is about New York, its history, and the myriad textures of our amazing city. There's another great show on the air about New York and specifically about the business of real estate, Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. on voiceamerica.com and also on podcast. You can like this show on Facebook, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles on those is Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. Well, we're on to our live guest on this special program commemorating Women's History Month. Uh, my second guest is Sarah Seidman. Dr. Sarah Seidman is the Puffin Foundation Curator of Social Activism at the Museum of the City of New York. She curates the ongoing exhibition, Activist New York, which we're going to talk about, which explores nearly 400 years of activist histories in New York City. She's also curated the exhibitions Beyond Suffrage, A Century of New York Women in Politics, and co-curated Pride, Photographs of Stonewall and Beyond by Fred W. McDara and King in New York. Dr. Seidman holds a Ph.D. in American Studies and an M.A. in Public Humanities from Brown University and a bachelor's degree in American Studies from Wesleyan. She has received fellowships from the University of Rochester, NYU, and the American Council of Learned Societies. And her writing has appeared in the Journal of Transnational American Studies, Radical History Review, and The 60s, a journal of history, politics, and culture, among other places. Sarah Seidman, a special welcome to Rediscovering New York. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Now, you're not originally from New York, but you have some family history here. 
Exactly. I'm sorry to say I grew up in Boston, but... Uh, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> you'll let it slide. It to a New York family. My parents uh, are from New York City, and you know my great-grandparents emigrated here in the early 20th century and lived in the Lower East Side, where I now live. Um, so, so deep New York roots that somewhat skipped a bit of a generation, but I, I came back as soon as I could. Well, that's such a great New York story. My sister and I have also that distinction. I have parent, I have grandparents from Eastern Europe. When we were adults, my sister uh, lived in Little Italy, where one of my great-grandparents lived from Italy. And uh, I actually lived in the Lower East Side, not far from where my great, other great-grandparents and grandparents lived. It's, it, it's nice to have that uh, coming back home feeling. Absolutely. Sarah, when did you decide that you would go into curating, which actually does have differences with what many historians do, which is to study, teach, and write about history? When, when did you decide that this is, this is your calling? I was always interested in public history um, and, and in grad school, um, explored exhibitions and, and ways to reach kind of broad audiences through telling stories about social justice and, and groups and, and people whose whose stories were not always front and center. And um, so the opportunity to work as the uh, curator of social activism at the Museum of the City of New York was kind of uh, a dream come true. And and telling the stories, helping to tell stories about New Yorkers, past and present, whose stories aren't always told and reach broader audiences is, yeah, it's it's wonderful. And when did you join the staff at the, at the museum? Uh, 2014. Okay. So... Well, six years now, that makes you, makes you a veteran. Something like that. <laughs> Before we get to speaking about some of the women uh, that we want to cover today, um, tell us a little bit about the exhibition that it's no longer at the museum, but you can read about it online, Beyond Suffrage, A Century of New York Women in Politics. What were the inspirations behind the museum creating this, this exhibition? The centennial of uh, when New York, when state women got the right to vote in 1917, we wanted to commemorate, and, and also in advance of the national uh, centennial this year. So we mounted a large show that explored women's roles as elected officials, in government, behind the scenes, and also through grassroots activism, arguing that New York City was you know, central to women both making their mark on the city politically, but also nationally. Um, and so we, we covered basically, or explored, can't do everything, 1917 to 2017 of the Women's March through four sections that looked at the suffrage movement, kind of the 20s and 30s after the vote was won for most women, I should say, um, and then kind of women's liberation, the 60s and 70s, and then kind of 80s through today. Uh, and... That takes us to the museum's current exhibition, Activist New York, and you are the curator of social activism, so it's you know right on target. Um, what was the genesis of this exhibition, which is still on, on view at the museum? So Activist New York has actually been up since 2012, even before my time. It was conceived by um, Steve Jaffe and Sarah Henry, my colleagues at the museum, with the generous support of the Puffin Foundation, which also makes uh, my work possible. And um, they really wanted to do a show that explored histories of activism from the 60s to more or less the present through a series of rotating sections because, you know, the examples are pretty much endless. Um, and once they realized, you know, it really would be rotating and ongoing, they needed someone on staff to bring them on board who could, who could steer it. And we've made a lot of changes, I think, 
two thirds or three quarters of the 14 sections have changed since I've, I've been there. So we had a section on women's suffrage that we then took out for the Beyond Suffrage show. Um, and we've put in new sections on the women's liberation movement the, uh, this past summer in part, you know, to commemorate not only the centennial of the 19th Amendment this year, but of um, really 50 years of the women's movement, women's liberation movement as well. So even the kind of past content on the suffrage movement, be it in Activist New York or beyond suffrage, really informs a lot of the stories that we're continuing to tell in Activist New York today. In a little while, we're going to talk about um, some of the women who uh, are still around and who would have called themselves activists. But I want to start out by by uh, speaking about some of the women who may not have uh, heard the term activist, but who certainly were activists in their time. Who was Mabel Lee? Mabel Lee is a Chinese American um, immigrant born born in China. Um, comes to the United States as a young person, is the first Chinese-American woman to get a PhD from Barnard. So many of the women we explore, or really figures we explore in general, are first like in so many ways and are, are so active on so many fronts. So she gets a PhD from Barnard. She is participating in the suffrage movement in New York in the teens. New York really is the national headquarters of the suffrage movement at a certain point in the later years, in the 19-teens. Um, and she marches... Um, with other suffragists and is, you know, working towards that. Um, but once women win the vote, uh, both in New York State and then nationally, women such as Lee uh, can't vote uh, nationally because of Chinese exclusion laws. Uh, so we really wanted to explore people who won the vote and also people who still could not vote after suffrage at the national level. So Asian American women, also Native American women, face different exclusion uh, voting laws into the 30s. Um, so, you know, these these histories are complex, and I think Mabel Lee really provides a window into that. She was also really active with her church in Chinatown and was just a community leader as well as now like an important historical figure that we think of relating to suffrage. Well, I think she founded the first Chinese Baptist church. Uh, yes. I believe that is true. Yes. Oh. And she just had a post office named after her right, downtown. Right. So I think she started, her story is starting to become more well-known, um, but I think not as widely known as, as we would like. And for our listeners who don't know what the Chinese Exclusion Act was, it was a horrible law that was enacted in the 1880s, which uh, excluded um, people whose origins were from China, either born there or the, or the parentage was from China. And thankfully, that was uh, finally uh, dispensed with, but not until the 60s. Um, right. And it covered other Asian immigrants as well, kind of a series of laws cobbled together that weren't fully repealed in 50s. So definitely. We're going to take a break in a minute, but first I want to ask you about Rose Schneiderman. Who is Rose? She's another woman who has right, a multi-pronged approach to history. She's an activist in New York as a labor leader in the garment workers' struggle, but she also was a suffragist and really shows how working class uh, and poor women uh, were active in the suffrage struggle alongside middle class and wealthier women. So again, women working on multiple and intersecting issues all at once. She was a union organizer. Yes. And uh, uh, many people know of the Triangle Shirtwaist fire in, fire in 1911, but uh, she participated in a, in a protest two years before that. What was the uprising of the 20,000? So it was a 
um, garment workers strike really led and urged on um, by young immigrant women from Eastern Europe, um, folks like Schneiderman or Clara Lemlick, who was about 4'11", and yet got up on stage um, during a union meeting and urged her fellow workers to strike to protest working conditions in factories like the Triangle Waste Factory in um, in Washington Square Park. So they'd been working on these issues, you know, for a long time. And Rose helped uh, organize the first International Congress of Working Women. Um, Anyway, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Sarah Seidman, who's the Puffin Foundation Curator of Social Activism at the Museum of the City of New York. We'll be back in a minute. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your conscious consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. TalkingAlternative.com We're back. Rediscovering New York and our special episode celebrating Women's History Month in New York. Uh, my guest tonight is Dr. Sarah Seidman. She's the Puffin Foundation Curator of Social Activism at the Museum of the City of New York. Sarah, what are some of the other exhibitions going on now that uh, you might like to tell our listeners about at the museum? We just opened a fabulous exhibition on the history of basketball in New York called City Game that opened a few weeks ago and, um, you know, also has many women basketball players featured in the show as well as college and high school and pro and, you know, it's an exciting show. So definitely come check that one out. We also have a show on... um, really that that relates to the census of 2020 and and thinking about New York based on population and demographics. And then we have shows on our recent acquisitions, collecting stories, you know, shows what we've been collecting in our museum's collections as we continue to really diversify our collections and and collect objects that that show as diverse a range of New York experiences as possible. So Mm. lots, lots of good things on view right now. I actually was at the museum this morning, funnily enough. 
and I saw uh, a good exhibition called Collecting New York Stories, and that was uh, fo uh, photographs and some interesting things. One thing poignant was uh, the, the uh, photograph of Sid Vicious getting <laughs> arrested uh, uh, after he killed his girlfriend. Anyway, part of New York history, like many other things. Indeed. Well, um, let's talk about another uh, Jewish woman New Yorker, uh, Belle Moskowitz. Um, who is Belle, and, what, and what's her significance in activism and in politics in the city? So she was one of the kind of women centrally featured in, in Beyond Suffrage because she was a towering figure behind the scenes. So after women won the vote, um, many of them still didn't vote for a variety of reasons. And they started running for office um, kind of immediately. White women, African-American women in the city. But they, they definitely weren't winning for the most part. Uh, Ruth Baker Sears Pratt is the first uh, woman elected to Congress from New York in the 20s. But it's kind of an anomaly. And it's more common that women such as Belle Moskowitz are gaining increased power behind the scenes. So she works for Al Smith as he is rising to governor during his gubernatorial um, campaigns and then during his 1928 campaign for president. She basically ran his campaign. Um, but she sat, she didn't have an office or an official title. She basically sat in the corner of his office, um, like knitting, advising him. Um, so she was kind of behind the scenes by choice, but also indicative definitely of the historical moment she was living in. Um, and then we kind of looked at how during LaGuardia's reign in the 30s were a turning point for women where they became more visible in City Hall. Women really helped elect LaGuardia and his whole fusion campaign and modernize the city council. So they did a lot with what we think of now as the structure of New York City government, and they eventually were able to become more visible. Mm. And a great New Yorker who became president actually appointed the first woman to the cabinet. That was Frances Perkins, who was the labor secretary. Actually, she was the, in the cabinet for the whole time that FDR was president, all 12 years. Absolutely. And the architect of so many important things that we continue to talk about now. Who was Pauli Murray? So Pauli Murray is another person who comes really out of the, the 30s. So this this next generation. And and one thing I'm always interested in since, you know, working at the Museum of the City of New York is claiming people who we don't even know as New Yorkers as New Yorkers. Um, she wasn't born and raised in New York City, but she spent a formative decade here, an African-American uh, queer woman who is a lawyer um, and really helped uh, craft the Civil Rights Act in by including uh, sex as a protected category to it, which wasn't I think she didn't expect it to uh, be added, but it in fact was. And she's just um, a formative legal mind who wrote really important uh, works that informed the civil rights movement as well as the women's movement. Um, and, and she, again, is getting kind of more attention increasingly. Um, she actually ran for local office in New York, and so she spent some formative years here before moving around. And women like her and Ella Baker, who we think of as Dr. King's um, right-hand woman or helped form the Student Nonviolent uh, Coordinating Committee. She also spent a formative decade working for the NAACP in New York. So people who really, like, boots on the ground in New York City is their, their political training ground. She was also active in the Southern Leadership Christian Conference as well. Yes. Uh, who was Antonia Pantoja? 
So moving on to kind of the post-war period where we look at um, Puerto Rican women who uh, migrated to New York City. Of course, that begins before the uh, World War II, but in ever-increasing numbers. And especially in Activist New York, we want to share their stories of women like Pantoja. Um, and she was also uh, Rosie the Riveter in a way because she was a welder during the war, wasn't she? Absolutely. Yeah. And then she forms like men like a she's she's kind of like Ella Baker where she's really a political mastermind forms various political organizations that get at Puerto Rican identity and Latino like unity really and um, another person that we've highlighted in that way is Evelina Antonetti who's doing some similar things in the Bronx at a more local level um, so kind of the more we go into the 60s and 70s the women that we highlight you know are are increasingly diverse who are in positions of power. Well, one thing we didn't talk mention of Pauline Murray is that um, she was the first African-American woman to be ordained an Episcopal priest. And that happened, I think, in the early 60s, when, uh, in, the, in like the first class, quote-unquote, of women who became ordained as Anglican priests. Yes. Episcopal priests, sorry, yes. not Anglican. But. She's like racked up more first than almost anyone I can imagine. So, yes, that's one of them. Well, we don't have a lot of time left, but I do want to fast forward a little and actually to two activists who not only would they have admitted that they were activists, they would still admit that they're activists because they're still with us. That's Gloria Steinem and Dorothy Pittman Hughes. Uh, who are they and, and, and what's their impact on, on, on activism and also on, on, on women in New York? It's huge. So, you know, they're such an important duo um, who helped co-found Ms. Magazine as well as um, like several other organizations in New York and then went on tour um, in the 70s speaking and talking about their work as journalists, as activists. They, they helped found the Women's Political um, Alliance and the iconic 1971 photo by Dan, uh, Dan Wynn that shows the two of them with their, their fists raised. Um, so, you know, and we're we, looking at that photograph right, right now in the <laughs> studio. Sorry, we can't share it. But uh, it's, and also, they uh, recently, uh, I believe they were at the museum and they, got, uh, they recreated that, which I'm holding now. They're a little bit beyond in the years where they were when that first photograph right. was taken. But the same pose. Right, not taken at the museum, but it's part of our collection. And they have both, you know, visited the museum, seen our shows, and they're highly featured in the Women's Liberation section of Activist New York. And we also have to say that, that Hughes organized the first shelter for battered women in New York City. And that didn't happen, I think, until 1972. That, that's fairly recent. Sounds about right. And she also worked on child welfare. So again, how multi-pronged these women and their activism were and are. <laughs> um, who is Denise Oliver and other women in the Young Lords Party? So she's someone else who we highlight in Activist New York. She was one of the leaders of the Young Lords community organization, but also kind of nationalist Puerto Rican uh, rights organization that was headquartered in East Harlem. So the neighborhood of the museum. Um, and Oliver had also been in the Civil Rights Movement, Black Panther Party, um, but spoke Spanish. She was not Puerto Rican herself, African-American, but joined the Young Lords and their demands for better resources for the Puerto Rican and um, 
uh, communities of color um, in East Harlem and the Bronx and um, also demanded better leadership roles for women within the organization. So getting at the tension, you know, for women's rights in society writ large, but also within activist organizations themselves. And we can't talk about activists in the women's movement without talking about trans women activists and also lesbian activists. Um, Who were Sylvia Rivera and Marsha Johnson? Pioneering trans uh, activists who really, as New Yorkers, were were central to all kind of national and international trans activism um, that you know has had ripple effects over decades. They both um, were at Stonewall Uprising in the Village in 1969 and kind of partook in the you know, how that event really catalyzed certain organizations such as the Gay Activist Alliance, which Rivera joined, um, but then saw how trans trans rights were marginalized within the broader gay liberation movement and how they were really rejected by the women's liberation movement um, writ large at that at that time. And there was a lot of conflict. And, you know, we're always committed to showing conflict among activists as well as unity and solidarity. These histories are messy. So Rivera and Johnson um, started STAR, a shelter for trans youth, and really, really worked for disenfranchised youth, trans youth of color in New York City. Wow. Oh. Well, Sarah, we're out of time. There's so many more people we could have talked about. Um, my second guest tonight has been Sarah Seidman. She's the Puffin Foundation Curator of Social Activism at the Museum of the City of New York. And the, city, the museum's website is? MCNY.org. Check us out for upcoming public programs as well as our exhibitions. And thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, everyone, we've just finished this week's journey to the history of brave New York women who fought for the basic liberties that many of us take for granted right now and who impacted their world and certainly our amazing city. Uh, You can like us on Facebook, and you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. That's Jeff Goodman NYC. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Chris Pappage. Sorry, Chris Pappas. Chris, forgive me. Mortgage banker at TD Bank. And the law offices of Tom Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off. I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Halstead in New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer this evening is the very patient Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Radio, 24 hours a day. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc.
I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 